seeing that movie, that was what basically just said, you're on the right path. Yes. You have something here. Yeah. You know, just yeah. run with it. And yeah. sure enough, over 30 years later, I'm still running with it. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that would have happened if it weren't for that movie. Mm. So I credit that movie with changing my life for the better. Welcome to My Movie Story. I'm your host, Brian McAleer. This is the podcast where we dive into the movies that have shaped us. Each episode, we sit down with a special guest to discuss their all-time favorite film, the movie that changed their life, and the one film they think everyone needs to see. Get ready as we journey through the cinematic worlds that make us who we are. This is My Movie Story. My guest today is George Soroy. George is the author of the international best-selling young adult science fiction novel, Excelsior, its two sequels, and the five-part science fiction support serial from Parts Unknown. He served as president of the Missouri Writers Guild from 2017 to 2018, and is the host and producer of the podcasts Excelsior Journeys, From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios, and audio drama Sunday Theatre. He's also an audiobook narrator, lending his voice to books of all genres. A New Yorker since birth, George now lives in St. Louis, Missouri, with his wife and daughter. It's an honor to have you on My Movie Story, George. Welcome. Thank you, Brian. It's it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I must say, you've got a great setup there. Uh, for those who are not watching the video but listening to the audio, uh, George has a really <laughs> cool setup there with his mic and uh, some mentions of his different podcasts and books. Uh, so, yeah, over to you, George. Tell us a little bit more about um, some of the creative projects you've done. What are you working on now? And, yeah, what, what's happening for you at the moment? Well, by the time this this makes air, um, I will hopefully have gotten all the way through National Novel Writing Month, which is uh, it's a project that takes place every November where um, where authors, aspiring authors, everyone who ever wanted to write any sort of a book will take the time to write a 50,000 word draft of a novel in wow. 30 days. Yeah. And when you break it down into 30 daily goals, it's much more attainable than just looking at that big number, that 50,000 words, because as long as you can stick to your daily goals of writing 1,667 words, which averages out to about five double space pages, yeah. then you'll be, you'll be just fine. Absolutely. And I've done this before. I've taken part in uh, what they call the Southern Cross Novel Challenge, which is the same sort of setup, except it's based out of New Zealand and it's in June instead of November. Oh, right. And so that's how the first draft of my first Excelsior book was done. And that itself was a was a wonderful experience. And Excellent. this time around, I'm going to be using this month to write Greater Glory, part three in the Excelsior Journeys. Um, well, the Excelsior journey. Um, and it's uh, it's basically just finishing off this trilogy in um, in grand fashion. I'm really, um, really excited about this story. I feel like it's doing this trilogy justice. And I I'm just really excited about it. You know? yeah. um, and <clears throat> I'm also going to be taking part at the same time in the national podcast post month challenge. And that is where um, where the participants uh, uh, produce and post an episode of a podcast, usually like about 10 minutes long or so, every day throughout the month of November. Wow. So that way, hmm. by the time November 30th is done, you got 30 episodes Fantastic. all set up. 
And yeah. so I'm taking my main show, Excelsior Journeys, daily throughout the month of November. Wow. And I'm going to be using it to not only do this challenge, but also to record my own progress on yep. the novel draft. So I'm doing both at once. So it's going to be, Beautiful. it's going to be a lot of fun. I may yeah. have less hair <laughs> than, uh, than at the beginning yeah. of it by yeah. the end of it all. But, uh, but yeah. it will be one hell of a challenge and I'm really excited about it. Actually like a physical book launch or is it online or what's that? Um, I did a, um, well, actually the funny thing is, is that all of my books are right now, they're kind of in a state of flux because um, Excelsior and its sequel ever upward have been picked up by a publisher and I just signed a contract with the same publisher for the five part miniseries uh, from parts unknown. So everything is kind of like, it's, it's all just, you know, like uh, behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, it's not online as of right now, right. You can get the audiobooks for parts one and two of Excelsior and ever upward. Yep. You can get that. And uh, what I'm really proud of is that, those who who listen to uh, my show Audio Drama Sunday Theater, the very first episode was the basically like the public launch of an audio dramatization of Excelsior, and this is not just an audiobook. This is a full cast. It was sound effects. It was a musical score, That's and awesome. it was telling the entire story in a two-hour block instead of the seven hours that it takes to listen to the whole book. Hmm. So it was an amazing experience and cool. it's actually the poster that's right behind me. Um, oh, there you go. And that's it cool. was, it was something that was done on the clubhouse app yeah. with, uh, with some amazing talent. Something that was once an idea in your head. Uh, there's nothing more fulfilling for a creative person to see that, you know, oh, yeah. I'm a reality and then have other people, be a part of that and help you bring that vision to life. Like it's, that was yeah. really what was, what Huge was amazing for me because yeah. yeah. Cause, cause for 30, over 30 years with this character, um, he was the only voice that was really in my, that, that I really knew of mm. that character <laughs> was in my own head. Yep. And then all of a sudden here's someone else giving that, giving their voice to that character. Yep. Awesome. Well, that's really inspiring, George, to to uh, hear and see that you've had great success with your creative endeavors. And, you know, I'll definitely um, take a few notes from you, I think, on some of my future projects. And for any other one, anyone else who's watching or listening who's now has got the writing and creative bug, uh, you know, check out George's website. The link's on the screen now or it's he's got it.com if you're listening. And uh, you can check out his work and keep up to date with all his projects. And Aside from all of the podcasting and writing and all that he does, he's also a big movie buff, which is why we're here today. And we reached out mm -hmm. to each other a little while ago, George, and we had a, a chat about your three films. And once you told me the titles, um, I knew we were in for a great episode. And um, I'm really oh, yeah. excited about this episode because these three films are so different and unique, but obviously in their own ways and talk about the art of filmmaking. They talk about history. They talk about mythology. They talk about society and the media so there's lots to unpack here so let's just dive oh, yeah. straight into it and i thought we might start with the film that you think everyone must see in their lifetime uh, and i really like this category i think i have sort of a soft spot for this out of all three because everyone comes to the episode with a different very different film uh, mm -hmm. and it's great for me and i say this every episode because 
I get to discover all these new films. I watched them before we talk and, and I did the same in this case and I was blown away. So anyway, I'll let you tell us the name of the film and if you can maybe just sort of set it up a bit for us. Yes. So one of <clears throat> one of my picks uh, this for this first pick is the 1976 film Network. Network by Patty Chayefsky, directed by Sidney Lumet, produced by Howard Gottfried. Television will never be the same. And if Rocky was not uh, was not one of the five nominees for Best Picture, this would have absolutely dominated oh, the yeah. Oscars that year. It already did, you know, for quite a bit. It got Best Actor for Peter Finch. Um, he had passed away before that happened. Yeah, got Best Actress for Faye Dunaway and. You know, like, and definitely deservedly so. Mm. Um, it took Best Supporting Actress, um, gave Best Supporting Actress to Beatrice Strait, who only had about maybe a little over five minutes or so on screen. Yep. But it was her, um, her, her monologue, her "I'm Your Wife, Damn It," yeah. um, which was amazing. It, yeah. it it absolutely deserved it. It it she totally. deserved. The Oscar. At the same time, the funny thing is that she was going up against people like Jodie Foster for Taxi Driver at the same time. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, it was a very interesting year that year at the Oscars. Um, Absolutely. But and, and the peak of the seventies in a lot of ways, really, because like, oh yeah, the quality of the films was really elevated in the seventies. I think that's was such an integral part, and and this really captures the seventies perfectly. And almost kind of a bit of a predictor of fu of the future as well in some ways would you agree oh absolutely yeah. absolutely i mean it 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 call it so nailed the the coming of reality television mm. it's it absolutely nailed it and yeah. in a way that um that obviously the way that uh, the way that it was presented was obviously different but at the same time like it was this wonderful mishmash of reality television plus uh tabloid television plus uh talk the the daytime talk show yep you know uh, everything yeah. it was all right there really it was nice. you know you throw in like jerry springer and then put in um you know any sort of any sort of reality show any sort of competition show or anything like that yeah and then you and then you have the sensationalist tabloid news, like a current affair and hard copy. Mm -hmm. Like it's all right there. It's yeah. all right there in the evening news hour, as I said, with Howard Beale. That's right. And, yeah. Yeah. And and just a and, and, good segue into yeah, for those not familiar with the film, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the plot? I guess the the first 10 minutes is really sets up the entire film and kind of where it goes. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah. and, and I do have to say that, you know, like anyone who is studying film in any way, study this screenplay. Every oh, single yeah. scene in this screenplay either builds on a problem that's already there or starts a new problem. Yep. And it just, every scene is, is vital mm -hmm. to the film. Not a second is wasted. It yeah. is an amazing, amazing production. It really is. And, and it's all about this this older newsman named Howard Beale, and his ratings have been declining over the over the past several years, and he gets the word that his last 
his last uh, appearance on the UBS Evening News will be in just two weeks' time. Hmm. And he makes the announcement that not only is he going to be leaving the air because of low ratings in two weeks' time, but on his last day, he is going to kill himself. Yeah. And instead of what should normally happen, which is just like, you know, everyone just kind of, you know, stunned about it and and trying to like, you know, just take him, take him off the air, which they try to do. Yeah. yeah. Instead, it winds up getting more news. Yes. And all of a sudden the ratings go up because mm. all of a sudden he's getting he's getting more notice. Yep. And then he he winds up building on it. Yes. And basically says, um, I'm not sure if we can, you know, swear on, on this, yeah, but he says flat out, he says, I just, you know, when he apologizes the next yeah. day yep. and saying that it was a, an act of madness, instead of just trying to sweep it under the rug and trying to move on and everything, he then says, I just ran out of bullshit. Yeah. And all of a sudden that gets more, you know, like more attention. Yeah. And Absolutely. then it becomes a matter of, Howard being someone that can that is all of a sudden looked at as an asset mm. and becoming the angry prophet, denouncing the hypocrisies of our times. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, the one man who always looked out for him, Max Schumacher, who is his producer, um, is becoming less and less relevant behind the scenes yes. because all of a sudden now the news program which was looked at as like the rock of ubs is now being brought under the entertainment wing and is now under programming mm. by the parent company of the U of the ubs network right, right and it's it's a real it's a wonderful look you know like mm. really just like behind the scenes and everything and Absolutely. you get the feeling especially now with more and more conglomerates basically just swallowing up all these different companies Yep. That you know, this is where we're heading. Yeah. This you know, I mean, and we're kind of already there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in yes, in our are, in its yeah. own unique way, we are definitely already there. So, sure. what this movie becomes is is a roadmap, so you can see like where things where things are going. Mm -hmm. But it's also a wonderful cautionary tale yes. because because as it goes on, it goes on to a point where we really maybe should not keep going in that direction. Maybe we need yeah. to just kind of pull up before something really drastic happens. And mm. at the same time, you know, we are now, we are living in a time where someone became nationally, nationally known worldwide known because of a reality TV show. And he spent four years as our president Yep, and is making a serious run at doing it again. Yep. So you know, not to get too, you know, not to get steeped in the, in the politics, yeah. but that's where we are right now. Yep. And we, we, we have, you know, millions and millions of people that are basically just hung up on the image of someone. Yes. And using that person as mm -hmm. their totem to kind of guide them to where yeah. they believe we should go. So it's, uh, Mm. It's a very interesting, it's, it's an interesting time that we live in, you know, to very, say the least. Yeah. And I think you've described the film perfectly, like how you just summed it up there. And for anyone who's not seen it 
and is intrigued, you know, it will reward you in many ways, this film. Like I just watched it for the first time a few days ago in preparation for this episode. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, from the very start, I was completely captivated. And like you said, the acting is just first rate, the directing, the screenplay, uh, and just how it predicted where things were going to go. And, and yeah, you touched on a lot of those points there about, you know, the news, it's it's all, it was all about ratings. You know, it was like your, your last, your, station or news show was only successful as how many ratings you had and it was it was this cutthroat world to get to the top and it shifted away from the news and the facts and became this entertainment sensationalism thing with this guy Howard Beale positioned in the center of it all which was I guess therapeutic for him he had a lot he wanted to get off his chest but Mm -hmm. you know and it may have boosted the ratings and given him this second chance at success but then how he was being used as an asset like you said and yeah. the fallout for him as the film progresses is it's quite shocking and it it says a lot about society and a lot about um greed and power and a lot of that stuff and i think it just captured it captured it perfectly um uh and yeah i guess you've already sort of touched on how uh what is happening in news today and in, in politics and that is a reflection of what happened before but i guess mm-hmm. um what other comparisons could you uh, draw from the film to maybe like today's news, the media, uh, you know, disinformation and these sort of self-appointed, I guess, messiahs who put themselves out there? Like w- what else are we seeing in today's world that was evident in this film that's nearly 40 years old? Yeah, we're seeing we're right seeing there. characters now yes. on <laughs> on television. Sure that's enough. that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing that, you know, the tabloid sensationalism. Um, and it's all about getting the news out there first. And, you know, that's that's the main thing that um, that the that got all the attention about Howard Beale at the beginning of the film. Um, he wasn't it wasn't the the fact that he had broken some amazing story or whatever, some, you know, some event that happened. What he did was he was the first person to actually say that he was going to kill himself on the air. Mm. And that became the news. All of a sudden, the news became the news. And that's what we see a lot now. We see a whole network getting uh, having to having to shell out eight hundred million (laughs) dollars because of the stories that it passed as news. Mm. And, you know, it's it's amazing, like what we have right now, you know, like we have these events unfolding in real time but at the same time you have this wonderful time capsule of a movie that is not only it's one of those movies that is finding a way to become more relevant and Mm -hmm. even better than than it was back then yes um it's one of those few films that is actually able to transcend the time that it's in yeah. and become something that's truly timeless because yes. Yes. everyone can identify with everything that's going on out there. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and I th- and those are the films that stand the test of time. Like despite when it was made, and it's it's obvious it's a film from the seventies. You can tell by the fact yeah. and the age of the actors. You know, this was before high definition and digital and all of that. So it has that kind of grainy, gritty look and all of that, which is which is yeah. cool to watch these days. It's kind of almost nostalgic. Uh, but yeah, almost you, like it, a documentary, really. Yeah, like it, it's very it's, documentary. It's style. very much like a documentary style. It really is, yeah, definitely. And and it's really Howard's journey in this story. And I think, aside from the 
big issues and the societal stuff that people will experience out of this. Um, can you comment a little bit on what you, what was really going on for Howard there? And, and was, do you think maybe he was always this sort of preacher waiting in the wings uh, and that, you know, that's what allowed him to express that so freely and, and just your thoughts on some of the things that he had to say. Yeah. What do you I think he was that? someone who was bottled up. Yeah. He's someone who was who was who was bottled up and only when he is given that sort of I don't want to say like free reign. He was given a chance to basically just say what was on his mind, what has been kind of what he's been keeping in here. Mm. And it was a chance for him to basically kind of kind of do something that's similar to what WWE uh, wrestlers and and basically like anyone in professional wrestling does because what they are supposed to do the ones that really connect with the audience is they are taking parts of themselves and amplifying them that's exactly what Howard was doing he was someone who tried at who basically just was honest with himself he was he he was feeling suicidal and he was feeling suicidal from the night before when Howard, when uh, Max Schumacher mm. gave him the news that his show was going to be canceled. Yeah. Yep. Or that he was going to be going off the air. He was, they were entertaining that thought. And it was something that, you know, Max was even just, you know, kind of poking fun at. Yep. Uh, just saying how, you know, just make it the death hour. And <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Know, um, you know, you know, um, you know, execution of the week, terrorism of the week. Sure. Yeah. The death hour. And it's like, and he took that fucking Disney right off the map. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, good point. And then he kind of took so, that literally. He's like, oh, okay. How can I? Yeah, exactly. That? And yeah. so that's something that he had stuck, that it stuck with him for yep. a period of time. And then finally, like, he just kind of let it out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you got this sense of this desperation for him yep. because it was really like his last ditch effort just by saying that. Yep. And the reaction from everyone else trying to literally pull him away from the desk yeah and having to like cut to the technical difficulties yeah. still shot yeah um all of that you know and then yeah. coming back and getting a, a moment where he was even more brash mm. and then but the funny thing is is that there was a period in um i want to say like the first third or so when they said that they wanted to give him some more free reign to uh to to do that same sort of thing, the angry prophet, but they were trying to steer him in this direction. And they were, and the, the different um, almost like homilies that he was coming out with. Yeah. They weren't connecting. They didn't fit because yeah. he was acting on the directive of the studio of the network mm -hmm. to do it. Yep. And then, and then he had the one epiphany where he was, where he claimed that God had spoken to him. And when he said that, you know, that this is that he should be doing this. And when Howard said, why me? And he said, because you're on television, dummy. And <laughs> but right and now. then that was just like it was that moment was just like, oh, he's starting to he's starting to really open up. Yeah. And then yeah. and then the very then the either the next night or the night or a couple nights later. That's when he stumbled into the studio soaking wet from the rain yep. with his with his raincoat on 
and walking past the security guard and saying like, how are you, Mr. Beal? I must make my witness right away, Mr. Beal. Yeah. <laughs> and so didn't think anything of it. So yeah, go right and, and that's when yeah. he, and that's when he sat down and gave one of the greatest performances. And this is what got him the Oscar. Oh yeah. This yeah. moment, this iconic moment where he basically told the world, you've got to get mad. Oh, love that you've got to say, you know, like I'm a human being. My life has value. Yeah. And that's when he said, you know, like, I want you to get up out of your chairs. I want mm -hmm. you to go over to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell. I'm yeah. as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Oh, an amazing and scene, an amazing scene. It was it was not only an amazing scene, but then you know, like to have that moment where Max is looking out the window and then this person's yelling it and then this person's yelling it. Yeah. And this person's yelling and then all of a sudden it just gets louder and louder and you hear more and more and the thunder is just rolling and it's yeah. roaring now and it's just <laughs> it's a one yeah. just this crescendo mm -hmm. where max just finally just shuts his window because through no fault of his own he allowed he allowed howard to have his moment that mm -hmm. he thought was going to be just that moment but what he wound up doing was he unleashed something mm. not only within Howard, but within CCA, the parent yeah. company. Yes. And by doing that, he released something within the audience. Yes. And then all yeah. of a sudden, everything that that built from there on in, it was genuine yeah. and it was 100 percent committed from everyone. Yeah. And then all of a sudden. What do they do in the second half? They turn it into a package, mm. something mm. that they can go yeah. ahead and sell to the crowd. That's right. And it becomes yeah, yeah, yeah. and it becomes something truly wonderful for CCA for UBS. Mm. Until he makes that one other monologue, and that's when he gives his Matt Prophet of the Airwaves about mm. the CCA deal with the Arabs. Yeah, with the yeah. with the Saudis. Yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden now he's someone that they can't control. Yes, like they've kind of opened Pandora's box, haven't they? And, exactly. Uh, I'm I'm so glad you brought up that scene there where he says, "I'm angry as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore." And then everyone's yeah. opening their windows, and that that scene with the apartment, mm -hmm. and everyone's screaming. So like he was sort of raving mad, but he was also he tapped into something that was that was there in society about letting yeah. that anger out, you know, and. And when social media came along and gave everyone a platform and a voice to say what they really think, and and that's mm -hmm. that's what's made the news so skewed now, and and how that's almost been yeah. used as a weapon back against society. It's like you put something out there, and it's like, yeah, you're going to get instant gratification and instant recognition, but then it might not always be taken seriously, or we're going to use that to trick you and confuse you so it's kind of like there's there's this uprising happens and it's and you see this in the movie with howard and he has this uprising and then all of a sudden producers get together and like right we can't control this guy anymore like you said you know it's time yeah. to, to, time to do something about it yeah so and they do something about it <laughs> they do yeah and we, we won't give away the ending to uh anyone who yeah. hasn't seen it and um i mean the ending is is shocking in in many ways um but yeah like oh, just just a first-rate film from start to finish. I was um, absolutely captivated, and 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 this is and this is coming from someone who absolutely loves the first Rocky. I would put <laughs> the original Rocky on my list of all-time favorite films. Yep. But this one, 
just with how tight this script is and yeah. how how first rate everyone everyone's performance is. And again, you know, I mean, what Network did was it basically just put put it out there and just said, this is how things are. And what Rocky gave was this is how things could be. Mm. You know, the some the the guy who is constantly down on his luck, the nobody, the underdog, the he underdog, can have yeah. his moment. Yes. You know, yeah. she can she can um have her moment. And mm. it, that in itself is just like that definitely elevates the movie really kind of past what you know like what network was in terms of in terms of what they were looking for for a box office winner uh, for an academy award winner because that's that's one thing that is really entangled in all the films really Mm -hmm. is hope Mm -hmm. yeah you know is that's that's what that's something that can elevate yes elevate a film to greatness absolutely and it's funny because like Mm -hmm. there were three films that really kind of that really tied together very very well that were all nominated for best picture because you had all the president, all the president's men. Yes. Which was talking about how things were. Yes. And, you know, as far as close back as two years ago at that point. Yeah. And then featured on the podcast as well for anyone who's hasn't seen tremendous film. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Tremendous film. Then you have, then you have network saying, this is the, this is where, you know what things are mm-hmm. this is the way things are and with rocky is this is the way things could be mm. so all three of them performed incredibly well at the oscars yep. and rightfully so so yeah. what are you that's something that yeah and that and that's something that you know i was just thinking of right now it's just like wow that really does kind of really do kind of work together they do yeah there was like yeah. it's funny because today's period films seem to focus on you know the past heavily Whereas in the seventies, yeah. a lot of the films were focused on on the seventies and what had just happened. It was such a turbulent decade. There was so much change going on. You know, it was yeah. like the Vietnam War had wrapped up earlier that decade. You know, you had this new mm-hmm. style of leadership. Um, you know, it was a different world. You know, and I think it's a it's a great decade for movies. You know, and Network is definitely oh tremendous right there in the top. And we've featured quite a few films from the seventies in this podcast, and I'm sure there'll be many more um we haven't had the godfather yet the sting the french connection we haven't had rocky yet mm-hmm. so i'm hopeful they'll all show up on this podcast at some point someone oh, i'm sure they will i'm sure they will i'm someone definitely will sure they will at some point so anyone watching <laughs> yeah there's your there's your cue yeah <laughs> there you go awesome. there you go well um yeah just in in wrapping up the network conversation and then we'll go on to your next film george do you have a favorite mm-hmm. scene or a favorite moment from the film uh that stands out um it's really, it's really the, um, the moment in um, the, I just ran out of bullshit yeah. moment that to me was just like a wonderful, like uh, a feeling of a damn cracking mm. and um, Max Schumacher, who, who had just come back from, from a big, um, from a, uh, a big board meeting that was happening, like a, a big um, presentation um, with CCA. And the announcement that um, that Frank Hackett, Robert Duvall's character, was going to be basically just you know saying that the news uh, division was going to be uh, was going to be wrapped up in the entertainment division, and it was going to be accountable to network. Yeah. 
And all of a sudden now that basically just completely took away Max's power as a, as a producer, as the head of the news department. And so instead of, instead of talking to, um, to Ed Ruddy, who was the, the head of UBS network at, at the time, um, he basically allowed Howard to just kind of torpedo everything yep. with his, with his, I just ran out of bullshit moment. Yeah. And because he himself was so bitter and so angry and it created, and, and it led to one of my favorite lines in all of film, which is when Max is on the phone with, uh, with, with executives. And he says, he's saying that, that he's saying that life is bullshit and it is. So what are you screaming about? i absolutely loved that that was the first time watching the movie and everything that i just laughed out loud and i was like okay i'm in i'm in for the for the rest of this and it it. gave me it gave me an amazing ride oh it it really does and it and it just it just it says what's true what we're all thinking what we're all really want to hear what we wish the news could be but then i guess at the end of the day when it comes to ratings and um controlling the information that goes out there i think the the motto the message i got from it was you know uh while while uh, liars prosper what is the Mm -hmm. cost for an honest man and then yeah he um he pays a pretty big cost and we're not going to say what that is. he does yeah and and a a lot of the other characters i guess you don't really don't really get any we don't really get much closure for them do we it's like and i guess that's reflective of life is that you might have a, a small resolution, but the problems mm-hmm. and the bullshit and the struggles will still be there even after the credits yeah. are rolled. You know, and, and this is why it's a film that we can talk about in such detail because you can sit there and be like, "Well, what happened to Max afterwards? What happened to right the Faye Dunaway character? I've forgotten her name, Diana. Yeah, Diana. Thank you. Yeah, what, her journey. You know, where does she go after mm-hmm. this? You know, does right does the actions that result in where, what happens to Howard? You know. Will the, will people be held accountable? Like you sit there thinking, like, gosh, what's gonna what's gonna happen after this? Like, I I want to see more, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so it's just and a what's and riveting movie, and right? based on based on where we are at the very end of it, where is television itself going to go from mm-hmm. there? Yes, because television itself is is a true character in this in this film. Yeah, and for your next film, uh, George, we're going to a very different genre now. Uh, and um, my hunch is that this film, uh, which you consider to be the one that changed your life, um, was very influential on some of your creative projects through through the oh, book yeah. you've written and stuff. So yeah, um, really keen to hear what that film is. So yeah, please tell us what is this film and um, and why why was it so influential for you? Well, it was the 1981 John Borman film Excalibur. Forged of splendor and magic, where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, sword of power, sword of kings. I had known of this film growing up. It had just kind of escaped me during all the way up until 
the summer of 1992. And that was when I actually had to go to summer school for English of all things. And it was my, my sophomore year in high school. I did not jive well with the, with, with my English teacher. It, it, you, you, you just have those moments where you just don't really connect really well with that teacher and the way that they're teaching the class. And yeah. And no matter what you do, it just won't sink in the way that it should. Yeah. Um, but when I started summer school with my with my English teacher there, everything just like it all of a sudden just clicked. It was just like, oh, I get it. And then and then it just became easier. And then not only did it became easier, but it became more fun. It became more interactive mm-hmm. and it became something that I was feeling more motivated into getting right. It wasn't just because it was summer school. I enjoyed it. I was, I was into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, exactly. I was, I was engaged. Yeah. This was, uh, this was at the time, like about halfway through, uh, halfway through summer school. That's when we started focusing on King Arthur. Mm-hmm. And it was at that same time when I was thinking about adding a new character to this little universe of characters that I created all the way back in grade school. Uh, my friends and I were really into all the stuff from the 80s, and we just created like a little mishmash of these robotic characters that we were inspired by, you know, and we were inspired to create. And so uh, when I switched schools and then eventually moved to a different state, I brought all those characters with me and just kept on picking at them. I knew that there was something there, yep. but I didn't know what it was. Right. And then... I realized when we started talking about King Arthur and how he was this legendary character, he was flawed, but he was, he did his best for his people and he had the sword Excalibur and, and it's mythic origins coming uh, from the lady of the lake and, and everything and how he was guided by Merlin, all of those elements that make up a true legendary character. Mm. That's when everything hit. It was just like, Oh, Oh, that's what I need. I need like someone who's kind of like at the centerpiece of all of this. Yeah. And this person was going to be like a God in human form. And then the more I, the more I got familiar with King Arthur and it was just like, it felt like, okay, I'm going to take elements from King Arthur and some Jesus Christ. And we'll put in some Optimus prime and, you know, put all these guys together. Yep. And what do I have? I have this character. What am I going to name him? And then the word Excelsior popped into my head because it was not only a word that I had seen a lot throughout my life um, as a Marvel Comics fan. I saw that on Stanley Soapbox yep. and you would always end them with with the big Excelsior oh, and yeah, you know, yeah. seeing it on Star Trek's three, four and six and then yep. seeing the word on the New York state flag because that's where I grew up. It was just like it's all right there. It was just like, this is it. You've got to go with this. Yeah. 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 Like I got to go with this. And then I watched the movie itself. Then I watched Excalibur, the PG version, mind you. (laughs) You know, um, I, I did, I did uh, the version of uh, King Uther visiting Egrain early on in in the story Mm -hmm. that was edited significantly. Oh yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, and (laughs) rightfully so, but it was, so amazing like the the look of it the scope of it and the performances and just like the feel of it all it just felt like a myth 
It felt like a true myth that was unfolding. Yeah. And John Borman did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. I truly love what he did. Yep. And, and it just, and I just fell in love with it. I was just like, I need to own this movie. And sure enough, I asked for it for Christmas and I wound up getting it. And I watched it over and over and over and over again. And it just, I, I I just loved it. Yeah. And um, it it really, yeah, it it really did. And uh, the funny thing is, is that um, years later, about 16 years later, uh, during the time that I was going to actually commit myself to writing this origin story of Excelsior in novel form, um, that was when I got to meet Stan Lee. Wow. And yeah, I got I got to meet him and there was, you know, I he was doing a signing over at Borders at, at, um, in New York City. Oh, I miss and I need, I need. Oh, me too. Me too. That was that was my go to like during yeah. uh, during that time that I was working in that area. Mm-hmm. I would always mm-hmm. just go over there and just, you know, just lose myself for a little bit. And then I would yeah. go back to work. And so. He was he was there doing a signing and it was the weekend of New York Comic Con and there was a huge line and everything. And I was just figuring trying to figure out, like, what exactly am I going to say to the man? I got to say something. I can't just say, hi, my name is George. OK, thank you. And yeah, yeah I, I had to say something. Yeah. So I go up to him and I say to him. You know, Stan, I just want to say not only thank you so much for creating all these characters, but for inspiring me to create my own. And he looks at me with a big smile and just goes, oh, great, more competition. <laughs> and, and 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 gives a big laugh and everything. And then yeah, I yeah. then I got to say to him that one in particular was was directly inspired by him. And then I leaned a little closer and I just go, his name is Excelsior. Hmm. And the you would have you had to see like the biggest smile on his face and he just goes, Oh, that's great. And shook my hand and wished me luck on it and everything. Yeah. Yep. Closest I'll ever get to a blessing from the Pope. Like uh-huh. it, it was, yeah, it, it was so cool. Yeah. But seeing that movie Excalibur, that was what basically just said, you're on the right path. Yes. You have something here. Yeah. You know, just yeah. run with it. And yep. sure enough, over 30 years later, I'm still running with it. Yeah. And I don't think that would have happened if it weren't for that movie. Mm. So I credit that movie with changing my life for the better. Wow. You know, it's, it's funny that you say this because I can really relate to what you're talking about here. Whereas I'm, I'm a writer myself and I'm, I'm yet to write a novel, but it's, it's on, it's on the drawing board. And I've had Mm -hmm. this idea ever since I was about probably 12 or 13 about a story set on this other planet with this kind of like, you know alien civilization and there's a close connection to to earth and and i was inspired by the film uh stargate from 1994 nice that's um, a great one yeah kurt russell james spader about this yeah. planet with this egyptian civilization which is the birth of egyptian civilization and mm-hmm. i started writing my own story which was like a reworking of of stargate and then mm-hmm. um then around the same time i was uh I grew up on Star Trek Generations, and the best film of that series I thought was Star Trek: First Contact, with uh, the Borg. Wonderful film, yeah, yeah. Oh, great film with the Borg. And I thought now I've got inspiration for my own alien race, which was like a combination of the Borg and and something else. And this story mm-hmm. started to like elaborate, and I was thinking about it all the time. And out of all the ideas I've had, it's still the idea that sticks with me the most. And originally it was one book. It's now it's now going to be four. 
and I've basically got it mm-hmm. outlined and, and, you know, I will sit down and write it one day and I, I can't wait to do it. But I, I hear what you're saying there and I'm sure other people listening or watching have can relate to that where you there's this i any idea that stays with you and grows with you as you grow those are the ones you need to pay attention to and I yeah think there's something there and and if and it's the power of that which is going to drive you and keep you focused to actually write that book or write that script because a lot mm-hmm. of ideas can come and go which i'm sure you would have experienced as well but the ones that have the staying power and it's it's so good to go back and revisit whatever was planted that seed uh in your case yeah Excalibur yeah mm-hmm. and um, it's a well-known myth I mean it's all about King Arthur and Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table and all of that um, and just on the mythology of you know King Arthur and the sword there's been lots of different you know interpretations over the years of that are there any other commendable TV shows or movies you've seen um, or is it just Excalibur for you it's mainly been Excalibur really just I, I've seen just like little bits and pieces of some of the other ones and um I, I adore the score for King Arthur from, I think it was 2004 um, oh, that Hans Zimmer did. And, um, yeah. 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 Trem- I, I've, I've never seen the film itself, but the score is amazing. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, uh, there are other like little elements of it, you know, that I really appreciate, but um, I feel like they, <laughs> I feel like they they did an unnecessary shoehorning of the King Arthur legend in the fifth Transformers film, um, yeah. especially especially considering that they had something already well started with Age of Extinction, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And then all of a sudden to just say like, oh, we're gonna talk about King Arthur. It's like, why? Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just well, you know, already there, yeah. But yeah, like there, there are elements of King Arthur that are just really like all over the place. And, you know, the, the right kind of references when they hit, they, re- you know, they really, really hit. And yeah. I just absolutely loved the telling of the telling of the story in Excalibur. Mm-hmm. I just love the feel of it. It just felt so weighted. Yeah. You know, like it felt like the armor that they were wearing. Yeah. Like you could feel the weight of it. Yeah. on you absolutely just like you felt like the weight of the responsibilities of the land on arthur and just you know that moment of panic where he runs out into the forest mm-hmm. and after after the other knights are basically saying to kill him yeah um you know they and they want him to have the power they don't think he's worthy but you know right and but the uh, but the the moment that you know where he wins over urians was a fantastic moment it, it was it was a perfect moment, like the the way that he basically entrusted Urians with Excalibur, yep. saying that you will knight me. I'm not yet a knight. And then as you know, the, the way that that all unfolded, it was fabulous. Yep. And then to top it off with Merlin's, you know, like basically just saying, I never saw this. Hmm. And mm-hmm. that in itself is, is amazing, because now now right away. You know, Merlin is being surprised by what Arthur can do. Yeah, and he's a wizard, and there's not much that would surprise wizards. You know, they've been exactly they've seen it all, and to be like, oh, okay, I did not expect that. Which, yeah, like right. You said, it just goes to show the the testament to Arthur and the potential that was was lying there un- underneath everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, like yeah, obviously it was it's um made in the eighties, and it uh, has a very sort of you know old older look to it and all of that but yeah 
really impressively made you know i think the and it, it harks back to a time where it was a lot of practical effects it was miniatures it was models but you just you know you still get really drawn into the the whole world of it and um and beautifully shot and i think i think it won the oscar for cinematography if i'm not mistaken or some technical you might be right about that yeah you might be right about that i i need to like i need to take a look it, it's one of those things where it just kind of kind of reminded me it's just like wait how did it do with the oscars you know like i, I just hmm. i was so like wrapped up in itself just in the in the experience of taking in this film and the great thing is is that it's not i was impressed and i also felt like a bit of a trendsetter myself when there were so many mentions of it in batman v superman dawn of justice okay because thomas and martha wayne are gunned down right outside this theater what was playing excalibur Uh and or at least like saying coming soon or something you know there but there was but the name, it was in the marquee. So mm. it basically says, not only is it 1981, but that's what comes out. That's what was yeah. either coming out or would be coming out or was already out there. You know, like, who knows? I'll have to take another look just to see, like, if, if it said coming soon Excalibur or something else. Right. Um, which I think, like, coming soon Excalibur, I think that's that in itself is, is, a, is a funny little nod yeah. to, you know, like, basically just saying, like, coming soon batman and just like himself yeah yeah. um because like he's about to be made and it's about to happen right here yes so um and and i thought but there's batman v superman um uh interpretation of you know bruce wayne's parents being killed i thought that was probably the best of all the films how that was filmed yeah you know um yeah particularly the the pearls on the gun and when the gun goes back the pearls slowly break and because yeah really well done you know there's a few other issues with that film but um, I really liked how that that was done that particular scene yeah because yeah so and there's and there's a moment too in in there during the during the actual battle between Batman and Superman um, where uh, where Batman is basically chiding you know like uh, really you know talking down to Superman he's basically saying that uh, you know uh, you know you're not a hero men are brave you don't know you don't know what it is to feel fear Yes. And, you know, therefore you are not a hero because those who face their fear, they're the ones that are brave. And he says the line that Morgana says to Merlin, you're not a God. You're not even a man, Mm. you know, or you were never even a man. You know, that's, um, and that's what, that's what Morgana says to Merlin after she Uh. allows Merlin to kind of trap himself under the earth. She says, you're nothing. You are not a, you're not a God. You're not a man. I shall find the man and give birth to a God. Yeah. And mm. the great thing is, is that I got to, I got to do that when I was writing Excelsior because there's a moment in my story because the story is all about a young man named Matthew Peters who is, who slowly realizes that due to, you know, different circumstances, he has become the heir yep. to becoming the savior of another planet mm-hmm. named Excelsior. And so the life force of this, of this God in human form is inside him and is, and is slowly becoming more and more awakened. And there is, there is a moment where he dreams of a battle that Excelsior had earlier on in his life when he first faced the emperor of this of this 
uh, of this whole race yep. that has basically been taking over his planet. Right. And that emperor is decimating him at this point and is really just, you know, beating him down. And this emperor, Noctarar, says to him, you are not a god. You are not even a man. Mm-hmm. And I got to say that, you know, like almost 10 years before Zack Snyder did. So I felt so... <laughs> I felt like, okay, yeah. I'm really onto something now. Yes. So, yeah, great, <laughs> so, great minds think alike. So, yeah, so when, when he says that moment and everything, like in the movie, I was just like, I said too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you you were there first, you know, and people can go. Exactly. And the publication date. Ah, there you go. Yeah. But I was, so, but I was so glad to see yeah. that, you know, that um, to see that, uh, that he was giving um, credence to that film. Yes, in so that way. It's been so influential. Yeah. so many artists, and and uh, yeah, you you ran, you just sort of answered my next question. There was, you know, how how did Excalibur influence your creative work? And you've just told us, summed it up beautifully. And for anyone who'd like to go and check out George's books and watch Excalibur and and sort of see the influences, and you know, hopefully it'll inspire anyone out there who's read a book or seen a film that's like, oh, you know, what? I could make some my version of that, you know, or that's good. yeah. So many great ideas you know and uh we all draw inspiration from different places and sometimes we can we can build upon that or just take one little mm-hmm. bit of something we saw and carve out a whole story or universe out of that one idea alone as well and and that's the great thing about storytelling is like you know it's hard to find anything completely 100 original um but yeah you know, we can touch on mythology we can touch on these classic stories and and interpret it for a modern audience and it sounds like your your books do that really well and um you've definitely got oh, thank me you. Books. i'm going to go um read what the, the first in the series <laughs> it's about i've got a few other books to get through first but um i'll definitely check it well out. by that by that time hopefully it will it will have come out because yes, once I'm the sure will. i'm a one, reader so yeah I'm sure well I'm once i can deliver part three that's when that's when part one can start to you know get its way back out there in the public sure. um but i do want to throw in another reference that i yes. really got a kick out of so back in the beginning of 1999, when uh, the World Wrestling Federation at the time, WWF, before it became WWE, was real, you know, had finally gotten over that 84 weeks in a row of being decimated by World Championship Wrestling, and they had they had found their their footing. They were they were dominating in 1999. They were just like this is when they would just really kind of lay waste to WCW and really get out there in the public eye. And one of the big things that happened in January was the return of the undertaker. And what they did was he became like the leader of what he called the ministry of darkness. And Mm -hmm. so he was in like the ceremonial robe and everything. And, and just very much like a cult leader type of type of person. Yep. And what was really cool What was really cool was he would perform this chant as he was turning um, a couple of different wrestlers and everything into his minions, with one of them literally becoming Midian and another becoming Viscera, you know, and so, but what he did was the chant that he gave was an abridged version of the charm of making from Excalibur. So it was... He would just sit there going, and now Natrach Dohiel Dienve. And I was just like, Excalibur. <laughs> so, <laughs> Again, yes. <laughs> because that's exactly what Merlin says. He says, Anal Natrach Udvas Bethod Dohiel Dienve. 
that's his charm of making. That's what really kind of like gets all of his, all the power. He awakens the dragon, as he says. Yeah. So that's basically what the undertaker was doing there, awakening the dragon and other people. And so getting that moment, it was just like, ah, that's cool. So so I don't know if it was either. I don't know if he was the, the fan. I don't know if it was Vince Russo who was the fan, but whoever it was, they, you know, they they dropped a little easter egg there that i yeah. i was all too happy to pick up <laughs> awesome awesome and that what a great time for wrestling you know and it was really sort of the peak of that phase of wrestling in a lot of ways you know in the late 90s oh, yeah. i was in high school at the time and you know like year 11 year 12 and it was all about the wrestling the undertaker mankind the rock steve austin you know it was just what a great time for wrestling so yeah and oh, and, yeah. and again it just shows like how this the story and the mythology of king arthur and the sword and the knights of the round table how it's it's influence and how many different interpretations it's had because it is it just speaks to us you know it speaks about power destiny fate choice you know um leadership so many different things you can take from it um and oh yeah yeah it sounds like this film came along for you at just the right time and and you know lit the fires and here you are now with the third book in your series coming out and you know just going from strength to strength as a writer so great and for your final film uh george this is uh, i'm so glad you chose this because this is <laughs> one of my favorite movies and uh was introduced to me at a time where it was i was becoming a real film buff and it is a film buffs film and and it's an important oh, yeah. important film to know about um and you know it's it stars a, a great iconic actor we all know and love um so oh yeah that's enough from me. I'll let you tell us what is uh, this is your um, all time favorite film? Well, one at least one of them. One of them, yeah. One it's of them. Net, Network is number two, but this is number three, and um, and, and a film that I believe you've already discussed here, two thousand one, yes. as my number one. So, but um, but this is uh, this is number three for a very important reason, and um, that is the nineteen ninety four Tim Burton film Ed Wood. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And his legacy that will live forever. How do you turn this off? Shake his legs around. It looks like he's killing you. Ah! This is the one. I command you. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. I have been, I am such a sucker for any sort of like uh, movies about movies yes. and movie makers and those who have a vision and get out there and, and make it happen mm-hmm. no matter what the cost. And that is really like Ed Wood in a nutshell because, totally. yeah. um, because Ed Wood was so Edward D. Wood Jr. He was so determined to get his stories made. He had the drive to make it happen. And he basically just had no shame when it came to, you know, like however it was going to get out, just so long as it got out. Yeah. You know, that's that's that was the way the way he looked at it. That's the yeah. way that he that's the way he lived. He yeah. loved movies, he loved show business, and he wanted to be a part of it no matter what. Yeah. And the big part of the no matter what is no matter if he had no talent 
in doing so. <laughs> but at the same time, yes. but at the same time, the stories that he had were, you know, that, that he had to tell and everything were pretty spot on for the v for the era that he was in oh yeah um but at the same time he needed cr a little more craft mm -hmm. in in his craft basically yeah. yes um but yeah. but he was someone who had this wonderful enthusiasm for movies and the fact that he was doing it the fact that he was getting his stories out there mm -hmm in film form and everything he was yeah. living his dream he was. and <laughs> he lived the dream for so many other people yeah. that did it and he picked up a really interesting crew along the way oh, he yes. picked up a director of photography who was colorblind you know he picked up <laughs> he, he he picked up the first actor to ever you know be reported to go into rehab bella lugosi oh yeah um yeah. And, you know, he he picked up a, a very interesting group of people. And I actually got to meet one of them, too. Oh, um, I got to meet Conrad Brooks. Oh, um, oh. Yeah, he was uh, Jamie the cop from, um, you know, in uh, who in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And uh, just a, a really fun person to talk to. He was mm. someone who really loved the fact that he was able to be a part of film history. Yeah. And, absolutely. Um, you know, say what you will about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Like it was the, you know, say that it was the worst movie of all time. I disagree. It was the best of the worst movies of all time. Yes. Um, it is. <laughs> it is. It is to me like the ultimate cult film. Mm -hmm. And it's something that um, that people try to make mm -hmm. and and they just fail at it. Yep. Because what Ed Wood tried to do was he just tried to make the best movie that he possibly could. Yep. And even oh, he, though he had the moment. <laughs> right, right. Oh, he's standards, yeah. He was all about just getting that, getting it out there. And he did it. You know, he wanted to make those, those movies and he did it. And that's something that no critic, with the exception of Roger Ebert, who actually was a screenwriter, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, he he wanted to get his movies out there. He did it, and that's something that no critic could ever take away from him. No, absolutely. Like there's there's a there's a moment in there where Johnny Depp as Ed Wood, who I believe was just masterful in in oh, the role. So good. Um, he was talking to he was on the phone right outside a studio, talking to um, an executive. I believe it was called like Mr. Feldman or something, and he had delivered his finished prints of his film Glenn or Glenda and he's on the phone with him and everything. And he says like, just, you know, check it and see how you liked it. And there was a pause and he goes, really? Worst film you ever saw. <laughs> well, my next one will be better. Yep. That's it. Hello. <laughs> just, and just like, it was a perfect moment. That is Ed Wood right there. Yes. No yes. matter what it's all about, you know, like what is the next one? What's the next story that he can yep. tell? Yep. What can he do to stay involved in this business? Yeah. And he just didn't know. Um, and it's yeah. And I was so glad that there was that the movie itself focused on this really like, you know, the peak period of his life. Mm -hmm. It focused on the three movies that he's known most for Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the Monster, and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. And the way everything moved, I thought was was great. And even though creative liberties were definitely taken um this was not a documentary 
No. Um, it was based on Ed's life and it was based and and it was his friendship with Bela Lugosi, which was genuine. Yes. He had a genuine uh, um, love for yeah. Bela Lugosi. Yeah. yeah. And despite Bella's own son, you know, later saying that uh, that Edward was just using his father um, and was you know was just a loser and you know and shouldn't be celebrated and everything yeah you know bella bella loved him too yeah bella you know like bella you know in, enjoyed him too and yeah. there and and uh martin landau i don't care what you know what anyone says martin landau deserved that oscar i'm oh, sorry yeah. sam jackson i'm yes. sorry you yeah. know as yes yeah Yes, you deserve, you know, he definitely deserved it as Jules Winfield, you know, but what Martin Landau was able to bring to Bela Lugosi was wonderful. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was tragic. It was hilarious. Yeah. It was heartbreaking and yep. it was mesmerizing. Yeah. He, he really humanized the character and the, the icon that was Bela Lugosi. And, and we meet him in the, yeah. later in his career, he's kind of washed up and, and Edward's like he he was a great star, you know, and he kind of gave him this, this second opportunity to be a star again, and and he was, you know, not necessarily because of a high caliber film or a quality performance, but but right. like you said with Edward, he was just didn't know defeat, he didn't know the meaning of the word quit. He's like, I've got these stories to tell, I want to be a filmmaker in you know the golden age mm -hmm. of Hollywood, and I'll get there no yep. matter what. Yeah, and exactly. Uh, and and Johnny Depp, you know, his second film, I think, with Tim Burton after Edward Scissorhands, and um, yeah, at the start of a very long collaboration between those two. They did several films, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, he was just, he was just fantastic in the film. Like you just you can't help but you know love this character of Edward, and you know he's a terrible filmmaker, and he's limited, yeah. and he's got obviously some some issues around identity and sexuality and stuff. But that's that's who he was, you know, and that's that all mm -hmm. comes through his films. You know, and it's 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 a film buff's dream. You know, it really is like a, a yeah, the gem of a movie. It's really good. Yeah. It really is, absolutely is. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, just and I I recommend not only you know, like if if you watch Ed Wood, you know, watch the film and everything, and really get into it, then um, you want to pick up the Image Entertainment release of Plan Nine from Outer Space because there is a, a feature length documentary on it called Flying Saucers Over Hollywood, and okay it validates so much of everything that's there not only talks about those three movies but also talks a little bit about some of the other movies that he did uh there's also the haunted uh, world of edward d wood jr which oh, yeah. was an amazing documentary that you know that really broke down ed's life through the eyes of and ears of so many other people it, he he lived an amazing life you know he like really uh yeah. he, a very very interesting life yeah <laughs> um yeah. And it's a real shame how everything really kind of came crashing down for him in the seventies because like he was, he just wound up like getting into porno and, you know, yeah. just to try to, just to try to, to make the rent. Yeah. And yeah. he was living in such a terrible place um, that, you know, it would just be like a couple, a couple hundred bucks a month or something like that. Maybe like a hundred bucks yeah. per month. And he wouldn't even be able to make that rent because he was drinking the money as, as soon as he got it mm -hmm. because he, he, you know, like you see like signs of it in the, um, in the film, he's always, he's always drinking Imperial whiskey. Yeah. And, right. 
that's that was just part of what eventually led him to be like a full-blown alcoholic yeah and um it was only after he had gotten himself somewhat clean and cleaned up you know where he was living in um in a, in a friend's apartment in a friend's house it was there when he died yeah you know like it, and mm-hmm. it's a damn shame mm-hmm. yeah. you know that you yeah. know that uh that he did but at the same time that he was there he was around long enough to see this movie that was supposed to be just kind of shoved aside mm-hmm. and pushed into the dustbin of history yep and all of a sudden get some replays yeah. on television yeah and that's where all of a sudden like the cult of of his movies really started in yes. he wasn't he didn't get to, to really experience it in the way that tommy wiseau did with the room Mm-hmm. And, you know, how he's still enjoying it to this day, enjoying yep. that success yeah. by just kind of changing his own perspective of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like and but, you know, like Ed was willing to do that as well. Yeah. Um, and he was always thrilled whenever people knew of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Um, which which he but at the same time. Masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, but he yeah. never got to really experience full on experience it because it was only two years after his death. That's when mm. uh, Harry and Michael Medved released the Golden Turkey Awards book. And that's where they named Ed Wood the worst director of all time and <laughs> Plan 9 the worst yeah. film of all time. Yeah. Um, and that's what what all of a sudden really kind of grabbed the fans. That's what really got their attention. But the film itself, Ed Wood, um, was just a wonderful love letter to not only the man himself but to anyone who has a dream to make their vision a reality yeah that's exactly what he did and it's something that will i believe should always be commended for it absolutely absolutely because you know in today's world especially it's it's you know the movie business is an industry and it's about big bucks and bums on the seats and and playing it safe Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways um you know and he he broke he broke through like you know back then it was a different thing the the hollywood machine back there was like let's make movies as many as we can we'll make them fast you know and and we'll make them for, for the theaters because obviously they wouldn't be on tv or video or laser disc for many many years after that so it's right. like the films had to make an impact at, at the cinema um so he kind of slipped under the radar he got a few films out there you know they're, they're questionable but like you can't deny that watching them is like there's a guy at work here behind the scenes who is just having a good time you know he's just yeah loving what he's doing he has a unique take on the human condition and and people and he, he sees potential in other people that others don't uh and he and he goes with it you know and uh and those films are explored you know in the film edward especially towards the end where they have the montage of him making plan nine from outer space and he finally gets it made and has his big premiere and he's, and yep. he's like, this is it. This is the one I'll be remembered for, you know, and he's. Um... And that premiere, unfortunately, he didn't get that sort of premiere. He got a very small theater in Hollywood when when he got to get his premiere of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Right. But um, but Tim Burton and the writer, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who all did just tremendous work uh, on this. Yeah. This was their gift to him. Yes. That was what they said. Yep. He gets. He finally, you know, he, he got the premiere that he never got. Yeah. So Absolutely. that to me is just like that. That was was a wonderful little um, mm-hmm. a little uh, gift to him. 
yes. as a means of saying thank you yes. for, for all of the, for everything that, that he endured, yes. um, for everything that he went through. Um, and this was, as he said, it's the one he'll be remembered for. And mm. yeah. And yeah. whether that's good or bad, you know, it really depends on your perspective, but that's the beauty of, of film in general. Yeah. It allows you to bring whatever you have with you to, to create what, you know, the, your point of view of it. That's right. Yeah. And we, and we, we need more original thinkers and we need more brave creative people to step forward and be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge this. I'm going to challenge that. And I'm going to make it this way. I'm going to make it that way. Whether it's mm -hmm. embraced or accepted now is out of my control, but here I am. Here's my story. Take it or leave it. You know, that's kind of what exactly he, what he was all about, you know, and it's great. Yep. And, and I, when I watched Ed Wood, I hadn't seen any of his films. I went and discovered a couple of them after I watched Ed Wood. Uh, but I guess for anyone who's maybe seen his films first, they can go and watch Ed Wood for that kind of, you know, uh, closer insight on who the man was, or they could start with mm -hmm. Ed Wood and then go and explore his film. So either way, yeah. Would you agree with that? You can kind of start anywhere with Ed yeah. Wood? Yeah. I think like, um, you know, definitely, um, you know, if if you're only going to allow yourself one, then go with Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that's a that's a perfectly good gateway mm. into it. Yeah, um, and then to learn more about the man himself, mm -hmm. then take a look at Glenn or Glenda. Yes, and yeah. um, and then to really get a good look at how he was working with Bella Lugosi and how since um, in Glenn or Glenda, Bella was just he was looked at as like the scientist. Mm -hmm. that's that was the the that was the name that he was credited with and it was really just like the god overlooking everything yeah but in bride of the monster he was the antagonist he was the villain and um and just and you can tell he was having a lot of fun with it yeah so yeah absolutely absolutely all right well uh i think edward for any film buff stream johnny depp fan tim burton fan or if you just want to see how films were made on a shoestring budget um, mm -hmm. and it'll make you think that uh, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Terrific, terrific film. Well, three really great films, George, thank you very much for sharing your, uh, your stories behind the films that have inspired you, that have got you thinking, that have um, connected with you on a creative level. Uh, I'm sure everyone watching and listening can relate to many parts of that as well. So, and, and all your behind the scenes knowledge and expertise is, is great as well. Um, oh, thank so you. Just to sort of wrap up our episode today. Um, and I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on this. And I, and I like to ask this question of most people is um, the future of movies, you know, what does that look like to you? Uh, you know, what would you like to see? Um, where do you think things need to go? Any Anything really along those lines. Um, so if you could sort of give us a couple of thoughts on that um, to finish up. I think what we're going to wind up seeing is, um, is, a, is an embrace of the past and the present because right now we have all these different movie theaters and they've been able to bring people back into the theaters since, you know, since COVID happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, but at the same time, like for some, it's been a struggle. So I feel like in lieu of remakes, which we've seen a lot of, yep. we're instead going to see re-releases 
oh. of films. Okay. And I really think that, uh, that it's going to be what movie theaters are basically going to be are like a um, a mashup of first run theaters, first run screenings and second run screenings. Um, so that way, and they won't be as expensive as, you know, the ones that are in their first run. Yep. But, okay. um, but a, a means of getting people out there and really kind of, connecting and socializing and really kind of bonding over film because yeah. it's the one thing that we don't really have in turn in with with uh, all of the streaming options that we have right now no, no. we have those so that way we can kind of like get caught up on seeing movies that we may have missed or in theaters or revisit you know after seeing them in theaters yep. but there really is something special about getting a group of friends and family or family members or whatever and going out to see a movie. Yeah. And thankfully we've seen, we've seen movies really kind of come back in a big way in the past mm -hmm. couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like it's going to continue. Yep. I feel like um, maybe I'm an optimist, you know, like maybe I'm too much of an optimist, whatever, but I believe that, you know, that, that theaters are going to be okay. Yeah. And there are going to be, there's going to be plenty of streaming that's going, going to keep on happening. That's going to introduce new voices to people mm -hmm. and hopefully get them started on the path. So that way their next movie could wind up being in a theater mm -hmm. instead of just on a streaming service. Yeah. So I yeah. think that, uh, I think we're going to see um, an amazing array of movies yeah. over time. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think this this art form is not going to go away. I feel like um, it's going to um, find a way to evolve, yes, and find a way to get more and more people in those seats. Yeah, um, I feel like I don't feel like we're going to be seeing as much in terms of the shared universes. I feel like mm -hmm. those times are kind of like they're they're on the wane. Yeah, I feel like people yeah, want to go in and see a film that has a beginning, middle, and end, and does not want to look at movies as homework. We live we live in interesting times right now, where people mm -hmm. are going to be trying things. They they may work, they may not work. Yeah. Um, but overall, I am excited for this for this wonderful medium. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will always love it. Yep. I will always do my best to support it, mm -hmm. and. I hope that others do too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said, George. And you, and you really touch on a lot of things that I agree with as well. I think movies are uh, coming back and are um, tipped for some kind of a new evolution, whether that's one film comes along and changes the games or altogether like a matrix or something like that, or uh, yeah. you know, we see a, a string of films released um, that send it in a new direction and separate it from television and streaming. Cause I'm, I'm with you. Like I right. missed the days back where the family would all gather in the lounge room and we'd sit down and we'd rented a video that we all had to agree on and we'd sit down and watch it together. Now yep. you can have family in separate rooms of the house. One's on the phone, one's on a tablet, one's on a laptop, one's on the TV, all watching different yep. things. Like where's that shared experience? And yeah. that's really the last place for that to happen is the cinema, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a sacred place. And if you look at, if you talk about, you know, um, story and, and, uh, you know, the, the creative arts influencing people in terms of their creativity, uh, helping them discover themselves, helping them get behind a cause or feel passionate about something. 
we tend to relate that more to say movies than we do television you know television yeah. has its own place of course and that's fine but yeah i'm with you i think movies are have to be protected and you know they're they're a sacred thing so um i really like that vision you've got of the future of the movies and uh i'm i'm with you on that one i'm i'm really hopeful and optimistic as well that it will continue to just get better and better so yeah absolutely and thank you for such a great insight and thank you for a great interview this has been awesome an awesome episode of my movie story thank you for coming on and sharing your enthusiasm and your passion for these three great films um two of which I hadn't seen prior to this interview and I'm really glad I had the opportunity to watch them. Um, and for anyone else who hasn't seen any of them, definitely, they're definitely worth your time as, as George oh, yeah. described so, so beautifully. So thanks for being a, a guest with us uh, on my movie story, George. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You too.